are two ways that people view truth today that compete for the heart of our nation. One way is to view truth as absolute, meaning if something is true, it is fixed and invariable. It's the same for all people at all times and in all places. The other view is that truth is relative, meaning truth can vary based off beliefs of a person or a group. There really are no absolute truths. According to Barna Group, 44% of our nation believes moral truth, meaning what is right and wrong behavior, is now relative, while only 35% believe moral truth is absolute. In our culture of relativism, the Impact 360 Institute, that does a lot of research on the next generation, says we are on the path of what they say, quote, generational decline and erosion of moral truth. Where moral truth, they say, is now increasingly regarded as something felt rather than known. When asked the, gen- the question, is lying morally wrong, each subsequent generation in a recent survey had a steady decline in answering yes. We have our youth in our service the next six weeks. There is nothing like, I was back in the sound booth, nothing like observing and watching youth raise their hand and worship. Because they're growing up as Gen Z, and Gen Z, only 34% of our youth believe lying today is morally wrong. In addition, a quarter of the youth today, 24%, believe morally right and wrong, morality can change over time. It's really all up to the individual. This word, truth, is where we start today in this summer series we entitled Relevant Faith. Is everything relative? Or is there absolute truth? Father, we come before you today thankful that we can gather together to worship the name of our God, to worship our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we live in a day and age that's really no different than what we see in Scripture. Sinful man turning away from you. And we live in a day and age where this word truth is really a battleground. Father, we pray as we go through the next six weeks, that you alone would speak to the issues of today's culture as only you can. We pray that everything that comes out of my mouth and as Ron leads as well, that we would seek your truth from you. Starting today, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be honoring and pleasing to you, Lord God. In your name we pray. If you're here for the first time, maybe someone invited you. We want to say welcome. We are thankful that you are here for Relevant Faith today. And I want to spend a minute giving you a quick background on who we are as the Bible Chapel. If someone would ask in one word, sum up who the Bible Chapel is that has existed for nearly six decades, it would be this one word truth. The Bible Chapel has changed in many ways started off as a house group, went through many different buildings, many different leaders. I guarantee, 50 plus years ago, we didn't sing the same worship style as we did this morning. 
We've had different campuses. We now worship across six different locations. And we've had different congregation members through it all. But the one element that has not changed for six decades is the commitment to God's Word as truth. Our theme verse, our verse, I should say, of the mission of the Bible Chapel has always been John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. That word sanctify means to set apart. We want to be set apart from a culture that in 2016 declared that the Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year was the word post-truth, meaning objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion or personal belief. We say no. We remain set apart that God's truth does not change with time. God's truth does not change with culture. And God's truth is set apart from your personal beliefs, feelings, or presuppositions. God's truth is the relevant truth our nation desperately needs to know. I want to begin today with the basics. How do we as human beings understand truth? To do that, we're going to use two widely acceptable explanations for how we as human beings understand truth. The first one is called this. It's called the correspondence theory of truth. Here's the definition. A thought or statement about reality is only true when it actually agrees with reality, that which actually exists. So we're at the end of summer. How many of you are enjoying the, the weekend weather? Beautiful, right? Beautiful. And there's those people who say, it's so hot, I can't take the heat. And you're like, stop it! We know what's coming. Four months, Pittsburgh winter. So let's at least use snow for something good, okay? If I say the statement, snow is white, that statement is true and only true according to the corresponding theory of truth if, in reality, snow is white. My statement must correspond to reality. If I say snow is red, you would say false according to the corresponding theory of truth. My statement does not correspond to reality. My beliefs, my emotions, all of that can be in that statement, but it doesn't matter if my statement does not match up to reality. Even atheist, the late outspoken atheist Bertrand Russell says this about the correspondence theory. Correspondence ensures truth, and its absence entails falsehood. Hence, we account simultaneously for the two facts that beliefs do depend on our minds to exist, but do not depend on minds for the truth. When Russell says beliefs do not depend on minds for the truth, he means Truth is determined by something in reality, nothing to do with how you think or feel. Truth by nature corresponds to reality. This also looks to this. We're going to look at what's called the laws of logic. Logic, in its most basic definition, is the study of correct reasoning. How we derive truth through the analysis of facts. The three laws of logic are universally accepted. They are undeniable. Even if we didn't exist, if human beings did not exist, 
the laws of logic would. Here's the first one. Basic. It's called the law of identity. Meaning, A is A. The law of identity says that everything is itself and it's not something else. An apple is an apple. An apple is not a car. I am myself, uniquely. There's characteristics that give me an identity that matches only me, not any of you. The law of identity is important because it makes explicit that everything in reality has a definite nature to it from which we can identify it and know things to be true. Which means, therefore, truth has no contradictions. That's the second law. It's called the law of non-contradiction. Building off the law of identity. I need a taller whiteboard next time. A is not non-A. Law of contradiction says something cannot be itself and not itself at the same time. An apple cannot be an apple and not an apple at the same time. And this concludes logically the statements we make. Contradictory claims cannot both be true. If I say, for our topic next week, that God exists, and you say in response God does not exist, everyone would agree there's a contradiction. A contradiction occurs when one statement excludes the possibility of another, yet they're both somehow claimed to be true. From the law of non-contradiction, we conclude that truth is not self-contradictory. This was so obvious that Aristotle in the 4th century declared that the law of non-contradiction was self-evident, meaning it's undeniable. It's impossible to think. God exists for me, but he somehow does not exist for you at the same time. That leads to the third law of logic. Got to get lower here. It's called the law of excluded since A is not non-A, it's one or the other, folks. Either A or non-A. The law of excluded middle says a statement is either true or its negation is true. There's no middle. Excluded middle. Back to our topic next week. Either God exists or he does not exist. There's no middle position that he might exist, or he exists for you, but not for me. That doesn't fly in logic. The law of excluded middle is important because it helps us understand we actually deal in absolutes. In a relativistic society where absolute truth statements are denied, true for you, but not for me, sorry, it doesn't fly So with this understanding of how we derive truth, I want to turn to Christianity. Is the Christian faith, the truth claims of Christianity, do they correspond to reality? Do the truth claims of Christianity match up with the laws of logic? We're really going to break down those questions throughout the next six weeks, but today we're set the foundation with Christianity's stance on that word truth. There, here's where we start. The Christian faith says that God is truth, and He's the source of truth. 
We live in a day and age like never before with religious pluralism, meaning many believe that all religions lead to God. Well, guess what? That's illogical. You can't think that mutually exclusive truth statements of one religion is true and then another religion that also has its own mutually exclusive truth statements is true as well. It doesn't fly in logic. Therefore, it's eternally dangerous to pretend they do. If Islam is true, it's eternally dangerous not to be a Muslim. If Christianity is true, it's eternally dangerous not to be a Christian. Christianity says we believe in monotheism. There is one true God who exists eternally in three distinct persons as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus is described in John 1, 14 to be full of grace and truth. And what he said in John 14, 6 does not get much more absolute or exclusive than this. I'm the way, not one of many. I'm the truth, not one way to get to God. I'm the life. No one comes to God except to the Lord. The Holy Spirit is called multiple times the Spirit of Truth, whom reveals God's truth to man. John 16, 13, when the Spirit of Truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. And as we started in the beginning, God's Word is declared as truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. And God is the source of truth. His word is true, but then we also believe God does not change and God does not lie. Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. Numbers 23.19, God's not human that he should lie. He's not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he not speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13.8, he's the same yesterday today and forever. Truth for Christianity begins with God. He is truth. He's the source of truth. He does not change our lives. So here's how we view truth. We believe truth is absolute. It's not relative. If something is really true, then it is true for everyone, everywhere. I was a math major in college. How I got into ministry, long story. Two plus three equals five. It's a true statement for all people in all places at all times. It's not just true for a group of people called mathematicians. It's not just true in a particular place like a mathematics classroom. It is true for all people in all places at all times. When you look at objective truth, it corresponds to reality that truth is absolute and not relative. Sometimes, Gen Z, you'll find this in your peers, People use relative statements as slogans, and they have no idea what they're saying. When they say true for me and not for you, they don't know what they're saying. And when they say there's no such thing as absolute truth, that's not even a logical statement. It's called a self-defeating statement. If someone says there's no such thing as absolute truth, just ask them, is that true? Right? Their response would have to be, well, no. Yes. Because your own proposition defeats itself. So, 
even your statement shows there can be truth. We believe truth is absolute. Therefore, truth is discovered. It's not invented. Man does not create truth. We discover truth. Psalm 86.11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart, meaning my whole self, to fear your name. Truth exists independent of our knowledge of it. Isaac Newton did not invent gravity. He's just the one who came up with the model, right, and discovered the properties of it. We did not change our mind and create the truth that the world is round and not flat. We discovered it. Some people still think it's flat. I don't know what to say to them. But we discovered it. Without God, an atheist, an evolutionist, a naturalist, would have to say we're all materials, and as we evolve, we create truth. We say no, we disagree. Truth is absolute, but our understanding is not yet as we study God's creation, as we use this tool called science, we discover and understand better the absolute truth of God's creation. And since truth is absolute, truth is discovered, we also expand that truth is unconditional. 1 Samuel 15:29. He who is the glory of Israel does not change or does not lie or change his mind, for he's not a human. Again, that he should change. God never changes. His truth never changes. Therefore, the Christian faith says God's Word never changes. God's design from the beginning for marriage between one man and one woman for as long as the both shall live does not change His mind. God's Word that says life begins at conception does not change the time, location, or person of the victim. We believe that truth is absolute. In a day and age where in Berkeley, California, they just declared that everything must be gender neutral, including no more calling these things on the street manhole covers. They're now maintenance hole covers. Literally, just to make sure we're gender neutral. Let me ask you this. Does that correspond to reality? Because I'll tell you what. Psalm 139 says that I was knitted together in my mother's womb. That's why at 18 to 20 weeks pregnant, a mom could get a sonogram and say, I know that's a boy or girl. Dad, I don't know about you, but I was a little nervous to watch the birth of our children. I didn't pass out and I stuck with it. I know, real tough guy, right? So, when our two boys and our one girl were born, the statement, it's a boy, the statement, it's a girl, took a millisecond for me to say, your claim corresponds to reality. God's Word says your gender is sacred. Because I created you. Male and female. Some of them might say, well, wait a minute. What, what about preferences? Because Dave, last month you went on the dinner with Kristen for your anniversary. And after your food, you said, we got to go to Brewster's to get my favorite chocolate raspberry crumble ice cream. But there was no Brewster's in sight, so you tried Betsy's in Mount Lebanon. And for the first time, you tasted toasted 
within like 20 minutes, your statement changed. And you said, never mind, toasted coconut latte is my favorite ice cream. Didn't your true claim change there? Yeah. But that's a subjective claim. Because it's based off my personal preference. It's subjective because the subject, me, is the determining factor in what's my favorite ice cream. We're talking about objective truth here. The mind-independent world. Because God's existing, if God exists, it has no effect on whether you believe He actually does. The real truth question is not, do you believe God exists? The real truth question is, based off the evidence, does the statement, God exists, is it true? Frank Turk, who's one of a, an apologist and author, one of his books is part of our relevant faith recommendations. He says that what relativism does often, basically this is their method, they confuse sociology, the study of human behavior, and use that for truth instead of using objective morality, what people should be doing as truth. Sociology is descriptive. How we behave. Yeah, that changes over time. Morality is prescriptive. How we should behave. The relativist often confuses what people do with what they ought to do. So if you discuss a moral topic, like premarital sex, or living together before marriage, a relativist would say, get with it, people. 21st century, everybody's doing it. As if current behaviors dictate what's right and wrong. My question is, where does that reasoning end? To take their moral position to a more serious issue, like murder. They were asking this. In the early 1960s to the late 1970s, when homicide rates in our country doubled, how many relativists said in support of murder, get with it, people, everyone's doing it. Murder is in. You might say, that's absurd. But seriously, where does your reasoning end? If you base your truth on the current behaviors of subjective human beings, and you have no objective moral standard. Without God, a person has no real basis for objective rightness. Frank Turek states, if all we are is material, leave God out of the picture, we're just this complex collection of periodic tables, there is no basis for morality, because morality is not material, it's immaterial. He says this, how much does hate weigh? Tell me, how much does hate weigh? Is there an atom for love? What's the chemical composition of the murder molecule? These questions are meaningless because physical particles are not responsible for morality. If materials are solely responsible for morality, then Hitler had no real moral responsibility for what he did. He just said bad molecules. This is nonsense. And everyone knows it. In Christianity, morality is not left to subjective human beings. The objective moral law comes from the objective moral law giver who is above us, God who is true. And when you remove God as the moral law giver, you remove objective morality altogether. Who is to say, truly, what is right and what is wrong? One of the defining marks of Gen Z, the youth of your day, one of the defining marks of your generation is you are passionate for social justice. I love that. I love that fight you have for social justice. But you're also a generation 
that has a completely different view on the word tolerance. The word tolerance means, and used to mean, the ability for someone to endure other beliefs that you disagree with. Tolerance today means the willingness to accept that all beliefs are equally true. That mindset has no backbone today. Charles Gilmer founded what's called the Impact Movement on Campus Crusade, and many college campuses. He said that tolerance in our culture today opposes the very justice that Martin Luther King fought for. Quote, tolerance has no cohesive nor healing power in society. It means a little more than leaving one another alone. Tolerance brings within an implicit moral relativism who is to say what is right and what is wrong. Moral relativism suggests that there are no absolutes from which we all can be held accountable. Such a thing was far from the thinking of Martin Luther King. A few years ago, and students, if you're passionate about this area, go read the book, Why We Can't Wait, by Dr. King. The book's main focus surrounds Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail. A letter written to clergymen who questioned, whoa, 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 Martin, hold on. You say you're fighting for justice, but you're breaking the law, the segregation law. Dr. King, in his letter, explains there is no such thing as a just law unless it squares with the objective law of God. In the letter, he says, how does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. Dr. King knew he had no solid ground to fight for justice without an objective moral standard above us, subjective Later on, he would say, in contrast to ethical relativism, Christianity sets forth a system of absolute moral values and affirms that God has placed within the very structure of this universe certain moral principles that are fixed and immutable. They don't change. Real freedom, real justice, real love are rooted in objective truth. God's truth. And when we talk about freedom, my words have zero power to bring, most importantly, the spiritual freedom that every person in this room needs to experience. I have zero power to change your heart spiritually. Relevant Faith, this series is not designed to win arguments. We're doing this series to use the questions of today to reveal who God is so He alone can draw people into a relationship with Him. Jesus said in John 6.44, only God can draw someone to Himself. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to allow God to speak for Himself. Let's listen to His message of salvation, His message of freedom, and we'll see, we'll see does the message of God correspond to our world? And how do we use the laws of logic for the claims of Scripture? So let's start right here, creation. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hebrews 1.10. You, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. In the heavens are the work of your hands. Science physics, the laws of thermodynamics, they all point to the objective truth that creation had a beginning. 
what Scripture says, that creation had a beginning, corresponds to reality. And when you look at God's creation, Scripture says His physical creation alone cries out that He alone is the intelligent designer. Romans 1.20 For God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, for they are without excuse. So tell me what's more reasonable. To think that we just evolved into these complex beings in this complex world, or that there's an intelligent designer behind it all. What corresponds to reality? Because the most amazing aspect of intelligent design is your physical body. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. The very DNA in your body the genetic coding and language that allows you to live and reproduce. Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft, richest guy in the world for many years, he says, man, DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software ever created. Microsoft, Apple, forget it. You can't create the complexity that's in the human body. Sciencefocus.com, not a Christian website, they say that if your DNA was uncoiled, all of it, it would be so long, it would be about twice the diameter of the solar system. The Bible's claim that God's creation speaks of His existence, that He is desired to me, reasonably corresponds to reality. And God's creation was perfect in the beginning. But then Scripture shows us in Genesis chapter 2. The fall of man into sin. When we turned our back on God and became a disobedient to God's law and instructions beginning with Adam and Eve. You see, an atheist, an evolutionist, I believe, has no concrete answer for morality. And they have no concrete answer specifically for the fallen nature of man. The Bible does. The Bible calls this sin. Disobedience to God. Anything that goes against the righteous standard of the Holy God as communicated in His Word. And the Bible says this, For all have sinned, every single one of them, and fallen short of the glory of God. Does that truth claim correspond to reality? Just look at what happened this past week. Two more mass shootings in El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio, in the same day. My older brother was devastated to learn that one of his former students, a resident of Washington, PA, was a victim in the Dayton shooting. The wickedness of man, the sin nature of man was on full display this week. And tell me this. Does this statement of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, 2,500 years ago, does it correspond to our reality of man? Jeremiah 17.9 says, For the heart of man is deceitful above all things. Our heart is desperately sick. How can a human being do these things? Our heart is desperately sick. So much so, who can understand it? Those events are despicable. We pray for the family. And the Bible says, here's the deal, we're all sinners. You might be thinking, hold on, you 
can't say that. I've never hurt anyone. I've never killed anyone. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever lied just once in your life? Students, have you ever cheated just once? Have you ever gossiped about another human being just once? Have you ever lusted after another man's wife just once? Have you ever coveted a neighbor's possession, another fellow employee's position or job title just once? If you have, Scripture says you're a sinner. And we naturally sin. The Bible says we have a sin nature. A, A dog is not a dog because it barks. It barks because it's a dog, right? We're not sinners once we sin. Now, we naturally sin because we're sinners. And to say that you have no sin, the Bible says in 1 John 1.8, you're deceiving yourself. And that word truth is not in you. There's not one person who can live up to that righteous moral standard that God requires to spend the eternity with Him And the penalty of sin, the Bible says in Romans 6.23, is that word death. By raise of hand, how many of you know someone who is 150 years old or older? Anybody? Oh, yeah. Mortality rate, 100%, right? But worse than physical death, the Bible says sin brought upon us not just physical, but spiritual death upon every man, woman, and child. Ephesians 2.1. Without God, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You're a spiritual corpse. Here's what that means. You can do absolutely nothing to get to God. That's a different truth claim statement than other religions. You can do nothing to get to God. Church attendance won't save you. Confirmation class won't save you. God baptizing you're an infant won't save you. Give all the money you want to the church won't save you. Good morality won't do a thing. Nothing we can do to get to God. That's why we praise God for His grace and mercy. Grace given us what we did not deserve. Mercy holding back the wrath that we do deserve by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life you could never live, I could never live, and take our place on the cross where He bore our sin. God loves you so much sent His Son to die for you. You want to know what love is? Romans 5.8 God demonstrated His own love for us in this. Not after you fixed yourself up, but while you're a sinner today, Jesus died for you. Salvation comes not by works. It comes by trusting in God through His Son, Jesus Christ, by faith. And this Christian faith is not blind. It's a knowledge-based faith based off the truth of God's Word. The opposite of the Christian faith is not knowledge. The opposite of the Christian faith is unbelief. Unbelief in the truth claims of God. To be saved, it's nothing that you do. It's trusting in the One who did it all for you. Romans 10.9 makes it simple and clear. If you profess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, if you believe in your heart, that is a knowledge-based belief. You believe in the truth claims of God's Word. You will be saved. And that's an exclusive statement of salvation. So here's what I want to end with. 
does God's word, does the truth of Christianity correspond to reality? And no matter what you think, the laws of logic says it's one or the other. Go back to John 14, 6. Jesus says exclusively, I'm the only way to God. That's it. No other option. Acts 4.12 says there's salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. That means, sum this up in the cross of Christ. Everything that Jesus did, died on the cross for your sin, was buried in the grave, rose again. Only the Spirit of God can open a person's heart. And the laws of logic says this, the law of non-contradiction. Either Jesus is the only way, or... Jesus is not. It's one or the other. Meaning, the law of excluded middle says it's one or the other for all people at all times in all places. Meaning this, if it's true, it's not just true for Christians. It's true for non-Christians. And if it's false, Jesus is not the only way to a relationship with God. It's false for Christians, too, and non-Christians. This is basic logic. Here's what our world does, which isn't true. The law of excluded middle says you can't say this. That's great. True for you, Christians. Not for me. doesn't work. It's either true for all people or it's true for no one. C.S. Lewis put it this way. If the Christian truth claim that Jesus is the only way to salvation is false. It has no value to anyone. If the claims of Scripture that Jesus is the only way to relationship to the living God is true, it's of infinite importance for all people. Here's what it can't be. C.S. Lewis says, it can't be of moderate importance. It's one or the other. Jay Warner Wallace wrote one of the books in our store. It's called uh, Cold Case Christianity. He was an atheist. And through the process of being a detective, which means when you show up on a crime scene, you cannot have presuppositions. Leave them at the door. Let the evidence speak for itself. He said, you know what? I'm going to try this with the Christian faith. And through the process of looking at the evidence, he came to the conclusion that it's the reasonable faith that the Christian faith is true. And he said this, knowledge only does so much. At the end of the day, only the Holy Spirit can open up a person's heart to trust in Jesus Christ. You don't have to wait to the end of this series to trust in Jesus. Is God speaking to you right now? I grew up in the church, but it wasn't until I was 17, heard Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is the gift, not a gift, the gift of God. And no one should boast in their works. I heard that verse many times. I don't know why. And that one night, I heard that and boom. Spirit of God opened my heart. And I trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And that day, I experienced eternal freedom that started that day. Not a future freedom. That day for the rest of my life. My prayer is that this anthem we're about to sing is the true anthem of every person in this room. It ends by saying this. We are free. Free. Forever I'm free. I have come to join the song of all citizens. Can you stand at the close of the song?
covered so much in a 40-minute time in these six weeks. This is really the launching pad series and some other things are going to hit throughout the year. But during this series, we're going to have two nights that are called Relevant Discussion Nights. Wednesday, August 21st, Wednesday, September 4th. Come, we're going to have roundtable discussion downstairs and just continue the conversation. Some real-life conversation. How does this work out? How do I, how do I, how do I stand for the truth of God? I also want to let our uh, senior high and junior high students know right after service in room 10, some leaders and volunteers are there. Uh, we got some snacks and food, and we just want to hear from you. We want to engage you after every sermon, after service. We invite you to go there and have some quick discussion before you depart for the day. Father, we uh, come before you again. Thank you for the time we had to worship in the name of Jesus. Father, your word says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 